Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. How's everybody feeling today? You guys excited to be here? Yeah, a few, few of us are. I'm super excited because today is Inside Life Group Sunday. And so what that means, if you're newer to Bridgepoint, in just a few minutes, you're going to have a chance to check out all of the life groups that we're offering this fall semester. And so what is a life group? A life group is just a small group. It's a community of people who gather together all over the area, different days and times, every single week. And the whole purpose is that I believe that when we get together, we begin to grow spiritually. Like, I definitely think there's value in gathering together to worship and to hear God's word and to share communion. But, but man, real spiritual growth happens not when you're staring at the back of somebody's head in front of you, but when we turn the chairs around, we face one another, we share life together. I've experienced that even in my own life. In fact, it was five years ago, my wife came to me and she said, Matt, I think God's calling us to lead a life group for young married couples. And I said, well, that can't be because at the time there were no young married couples at our church. So God was going to have to do a miracle in order for, it might just be me and her in the group. I don't know. And so I was like, are you sure? She said, yeah. So we start this group and sure enough, within two weeks, we had 18 people registered for our group. And man, those are some of the friendships that we are so close to even today. In fact, uh, some of those great friends are our missionaries that are now serving over in Southeast Asia. And so, man, we just have these lifelong connections and bonds that we built through life groups. That's why we, we think community is so important. See, we're not just a church that does life groups. We are a church of life groups. We have more people in groups than we have on Sunday morning. And so Sunday morning is just when all our groups happen to get together and worship alongside one another. So you're going to hear more about that in just a few moments. But today we're also continuing in our series called Uncomfortable, where we're looking at the book of Mark. Now, now why Mark? I mean, people ask me, that. why'd you pick Mark? Because, you know, Matthew has great teaching of Jesus, and John has all the spiritual depth, and Luke has these great miracles. But Mark, I mean, Mark's interesting. It's the shortest of the Gospels. There's not much of Jesus' teachings. So why would we go through this account of Jesus' life? And the reason is because Mark actually is writing to an audience that's very similar to you and me. See, Mark didn't write his gospel to try to convince people who didn't know Jesus to believe in him. And you say, well, why on earth would you write a story of Jesus if you weren't trying to convince people to believe in him? Well, Mark wrote his story to remind Christians of who Jesus really is. Because I think sometimes we can be so comfortable with Jesus that he doesn't challenge us anymore. I remember when my wife and I had our first house. It was built in 1972, and so a lot of stuff in there was from 1972, including in our hallway bathroom, they had peel-and-stick tile that had been in there for like 40 years. And so it's actually like it wasn't even stuck anymore. It's like a slide puzzle on the ground every time you walked in there. And so we decided we're going to redo the bathroom floor. So we just like pick up the tiles, and then we, we bought like actual tile. And so we put the mortar down, we laid the tile down, we put the ground in it looked awesome. But the only thing I didn't account for is that when you have little peel and stick tile and then you go to actual tile, you've added like three quarters to an inch of like extra room that now my closet door in the bathroom couldn't open up. And so I had to take it off the hinges and I was just going to shave a little bit off the bottom. But um, we have a saying in our family, Spears are great at doing the first 99% of a project, but then it's time to move on to the next one. And so everything was finished in that bathroom except the closet door. 
And I went in that bathroom every day, never bothered me, never noticed it. But every time a guest came over to our house, they would come out and say, um, there's no door on the bath in the closet in your bathroom. Do, do you know that? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been meaning to get to that. And it just, you get used to it after a while. And my fear is that same thing happens to all of us when it comes to Jesus. Because we've heard the stories, we've been in church, we've been in groups before, and we've become so comfortable with Jesus that we don't realize the way that he's challenging us. See, Mark wanted to take people who were comfortable with Jesus and make them uncomfortable. People who were so familiar with Jesus that they actually missed Jesus and to kind of shake those people up. And that's what I believe the book of Mark is going to do to us as well. And so we kind of kicked things off last week by talking about the fact that Mark doesn't start his gospel by saying, here's a new story, but he actually connects it to the story that the Old Testament tells. It's a story of how the world is a broken place. You didn't need me to tell you that this morning. I mean, we can look around the world. There's broken marriages, broken relationships. I mean, we have our own bodies can rebel against us with cancer or other illnesses. I mean, there's brokenness all around us. And we look around and say, surely this is not the world the way God intended it. And God's answer is absolutely not. But here's where we have to be very clear. The story of the Bible is not that God is trying to save us before he destroys the world. The story of the Bible is that he wants to rescue, redeem, and restore the whole world, and he's inviting us to be a part of that. Because God's plan to rescue and restore the world was always to do it through his people. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. This was God's kingdom here on earth. And he wanted to use them, he wanted to bless them so that they would be a blessing to the world. In fact, he called them to be a, such a completely different kind of kingdom. He didn't want them to have a king. He didn't want them to big, uh, build a big military. He wanted them to trust him to lead them and him to protect them. They weren't supposed to accumulate mass amounts of wealth, but they were supposed to care for the poor. In fact, they were supposed to celebrate something called the year of Jubilee, where all debt was forgiven and all slaves were released. Who here would love a year of Jubilee? Amen? Like just all debt forgiven. But, but unfortunately, over time, the Israelites started to receive these blessings, and they thought, well, maybe we can handle this on our own. And so they ask God for a king. They start to build a massive military. In fact, Solomon had so much wealth, the Bible says he had 666 tons of gold. A number 666, that should send alarm bells off. You should not be accumulating that much gold. They stopped caring for, for the, the, the poor. They stopped opening their borders to refugees. They kind of shut everything down and made it all about themselves. In fact, not only that, but then they began to worship other gods so they could get blessing from them as well. And God kept calling his people, come back, be the kingdom I have called you to be. We're supposed to show the world what heaven looks like and then ask them to be a part of it. But, but you're not living that out. But after century and century and century of God's people rejecting him, he said, I'm not going to force myself on you. And so he removes his protection. And then God's kingdom is defeated by the Assyrians the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. And by the time we get to Jesus, it's the Romans who have conquered God's people. They're the ones in charge. And so the end of the Old Testament is God's people wrestling with the fact that we know that we sin. We know that we rejected God, and as a result, his kingdom is gone. So does that mean God's given up on this world? Does that mean God's given up on trying to rescue and restore all of creation? But God sends prophets who say no. There is still hope because one day I'm going to send a new savior, a new Messiah who will reestablish God's kingdom here on earth. 
So when you get to the time of Jesus, the Jewish people are looking for God's kingdom, the nation of Israel, to be reestablished so they can pick right back up where they left off. But the question is, why, why have we waited over 400 years for this to happen? Well, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they knew the answer. It was because of all these sinful people. Because we sinned against God, and that's what led us into bondage. And so what we need to do is make sure everyone follows all the commands. And if we could just get them to follow the commands for one day, then God would restore his kingdom here on earth. So the religious leaders felt like it was their duty not only to instruct the law, but to make sure everybody was doing their part. Now, if that's how the religious leaders thought, then how do you think they felt about people who were habitual sinners? People like prostitutes, people like drunks, people who were sick even, because they thought if you were sick, it was God's judgment on you for doing something wrong. How do you think those leaders treated those people? They pushed them to the margins of society. They said, you're the reason why. You're the reason why God's judgment has come on our people. You're the reason why God hasn't rescued us. And it's so tempting to think, man, these are just bad dudes who just don't know any better. But, but make no mistake, they love God, but in their passion for God, they forgot to love other people. See, don't we do the same thing? You've probably heard the televangelists just like I have who say, well, it's that LGBTQ community. That's why God's judgment's here. It's because the Democrats have control of the White House. That's why God's judgment's here. Like we, we will point to other people and we'll say, they're the reason why. You notice not many people say, I'm the reason why. I'm the reason why God hasn't. It's always somebody else's fault. Now, Mark chapter one begins with Jesus saying, guess what, guys? The kingdom of God is here. I've come to bring the kingdom. That promise that you've been hanging on to, the hope you've been clinging to, I've come to fulfill it. And he kind of proves this by doing this series of miracles. Now, anyone claiming to restore the kingdom of God is going to get the attention of the religious leaders. And so what we see in Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through Mark chapter 3, verse 6, is a series of conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. There's five conflicts back to back to back to back to back. And I had to count those. That's a lot of back to backs. But I want to look at those today, and some of you are thinking, this is going to be a long sermon. I promise it's not going to be. But I want to look at those because actually these conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders, I think, actually speak to us today in the conflict we feel on how do we follow Jesus. Now, it's fascinating to me that in these conflicts, the first and the final conflict actually revolve around the same thing. They revolve around a healing. So in both of these stories, you're going to see in just a minute, the Pharisees are questioning who Jesus is. Jesus heals a man, and then somebody leaves their presence. So in the first story, Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees. He heals a man, and then a man leaves praising God. In the fifth and final conflict, the Pharisees are questioning who Jesus is. He heals a man, and this time it's not the man who leaves praising God. It's the Pharisees who leave plotting to kill Jesus. Now, you're ready to nerd out for just a little bit. A couple of you are ready. All right, okay, I'm ready to nerd out. I want to teach you. This is like not Bible 101. I'm about to teach you some Bible 201. Because in ancient times, when they compiled stories, they weren't compiling them in chronological order. Like these things didn't necessarily happen in this order, but Mark puts them together because he's trying to communicate something to us. In fact, do you remember in school anything about poetry? Do you guys remember like A, B, A, B? Like the, the first and third lines rhyme and the second and fourth? 
Well, there's something similar in scripture called chiasm. Everybody say chiasm. Okay, man, you guys are good with that one. All right. So chiasm is where you have a series of things. So in this case, five, where it's A, B, C, B, A. Does that make sense? A, B, C, B, A. So the first and the fifth, those healing stories match up. The middle three stories all revolve around eating. And the second and fourth line up, well, that leaves this middle one. Well, in a chiasm, whatever is in the middle is the whole point that the author's trying to get you to see. It is the key to understanding the rest of the conflict stories. Are we tracking so far? So what I want, I explain all that to say, we're going to look at the middle story first and to see what is Jesus communicating, and we'll walk back through quickly the other conflicts to see how that applies to us today. Now that third, the middle conflict, it starts in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, this was a big deal for these people. And when we read this, we're thinking, okay, well, who cares? Who cares who's fasting and who's not fasting? We're in the middle of 21 days of prayer right now. And some of us are fasting and then some of us aren't, but there's not a whole lot of discussion and trying to figure out, well, who's fasting and who's not? You know, that's, that's not really the point. But for them, this was a huge deal because the Pharisees and their disciples actually fasted every week, two times a week. Scholars think on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And the whole point of them fasting was to get God's attention so that he would restore his kingdom. Now, we talked last week about John the Baptist. He was baptizing people in the wilderness. Remember that? And he was baptizing people into a movement. He was saying God's kingdom is about to be here. And so we got to repent and we got to get on board. So now John's disciples are fasting because they want God's kingdom to come. And so these people come to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, do you not care about God's kingdom? Because John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. But you guys aren't. Jesus, do you not care about God's kingdom. And I love Jesus' response in verse 19. He said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. And no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. It's clear as mud, right? I mean, you're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're talking about weddings and wine and patching old clothes. What on earth is he saying? The point Jesus is making is, listen, those people are fasting because they want the kingdom of God to come. What my disciples realize is I'm bringing the kingdom of God. They don't have to fast while I'm here because I'm bringing it. Now, there will be a time when I leave and they can fast again so that the kingdom of God grows and expands and kind of consumes the whole earth. But now they don't need to fast because what I'm doing is something new. And if you do something new, you can't do it in the old ways. If you take a, a new piece of cloth and put it on to patch like something on your clothes, once you wash that, the new patch will shrink and it'll rip the clothes. Or if you pour new wine into old wineskins, these wineskins would have been dried out. And if you pour new wine in, it starts to expand and crack and you waste everything. Jesus is saying, I'm doing something new so you can't do things the way you've been doing them. Right? The, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Jesus is saying, I've come to do something new, so stop doing it the way you've been doing it. 
Which begs the question, well, what are the things that they've been doing? That's the key here to go back and see all the other conflicts. Because at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, it says that Jesus goes back to Capernaum and he's hanging out in this house. What most scholars think is he's in Peter's house at this point. His disciple, the same disciple who he hung out in his house and healed his mother-in-law. We talked about that last week. So Jesus kind of sets up his base of operations in Peter's house. And these people hear that Jesus has come back. I mean, we remember when he was healing and when he was teaching. And so these crowds start to fill Peter's house. Now, I don't know how big the crowds were, if there were 20 people or 30 people or 50 people, but we know they filled that house. In fact, they filled it so much they kind of spilled outside even. There's like a line to get in to see Jesus. And then we read that there are four friends bringing their paralyzed friend to see Jesus. See, they'd heard about these miracles that Jesus had performed, and they believed if we could just get our friend to Jesus, he could change everything. If we could get our friend to the feet of Jesus, then a miracle can happen. But they get up, and they can't get through the crowd to get their friend to Jesus. Now, at this point, you know, a lot of people would say, you know what, I don't have time for this. I don't know, are you like me? You ever pull up to the Chick-fil-A line? You're like, I don't have time for this. I'm going to McDonald's, right? There's never a line at McDonald's. You just go right through, okay? But at Chick-fil-A, you're like, I don't know, I can't wait here 45 minutes. They could have pulled up and said, I don't have time for this. I have other things to do. You know how hard it is to carry a paralyzed man? But see, they weren't concerned about that. They were actually more concerned about their friend than they were the crowd. It's important to remind you guys, too, the crowds in Mark were never a good thing. The crowds always prevented people from getting to Jesus. See, and we think that the definition of success in ministry is let's get a big crowd, right? If Jesus were here today, let's pack out the arenas. Let's get him preaching. Let's get him on Instagram. Like we think the crowds are great, but the crowds always caused a problem because they were curious, sure, but they were showing up to see what Jesus could do for them. These people showed up to see what Jesus could do for their friend and the crowds were blocking their access. And so I love the way Mark just puts it matter-of-factly. He says they carried him up to the roof, they dug a hole through, and dropped him at the feet of Jesus. Now that leaves a lot of room for some imagination there. I mean, I wonder, I wonder what that was like. I know what it's like sometimes when you're teaching and maybe a baby cries or a cell phone goes off and you're trying to power through. And Can you imagine Jesus teaching and all of a sudden you hear footsteps on the roof? It's like, is it Christmas time? Like, I don't know what, what's going on here. And, and I know like when that happens, I see all you guys turning around to look where the noise is coming from. So maybe Jesus is teaching and everybody's looking up at the, the ceiling. Then all of a sudden there's this scratching noise and, and maybe some dust and some pieces of dirt start to fall through. And all of a sudden a hand punches through the, the ceiling. I mean, at this point, like Jesus is like, all right, we can't teach anymore. All right, we're just going to see how this whole thing plays out. It's like, does somebody's head poke through? Like, yeah, he's down there. All right, bring him over. They lower this man at the feet of Jesus. And I love Jesus' response. Mark chapter two, verse five. It says, seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So it says, Jesus saw their faith and his natural response to that was, son, your sins are forgiven. Now for us, we think, okay, what's the big deal? You're forgiving somebody's sin. Maybe the Pharisees are right and this guy did sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because the Pharisees thought that this person who could not walk 
was judged by God, he would not have been allowed to worship. He would not have been allowed to be a part of the Jewish community. He'd spent his whole life being told, you're under God's judgment. It's your fault God hasn't saved us. You are no good. You are worthless. And we wish you weren't here. You cannot be a part of our community. And when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, what he's actually telling that man is you get to be a part of the community. You thought you were on the outside, but now you're on the inside. I have forgiven your sins. Now, the Pharisees, they happen to be there checking Jesus out. They say, wait a second. We know the scripture. Nobody forgives sin except for God. Who does Jesus think he is? Now, can you imagine if I came out here next Sunday and was like, guys, I had a vision from God and um, I'm God. So you guys just follow me. You know, you should just walk right out that front door, right? Like you, that, you would think, okay, this guy's gone crazy. He'd probably get stopped afterwards, get checked into a hospital for, for a little while. I mean, we would think that person, they thought Jesus was blasphemous. They thought that he had gone crazy. And Jesus knows this. And knowing this, he says, you know what? I'll prove to you that I have the power to forgive sin. He turns to the man, he says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And this guy says he picks up his mat and he walks out. I mean, did he not say anything? He's just like, just like it's normal. Just pick up his mat and walk out. And all of a sudden, people start praising Jesus. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. Because in this conflict, I think we see a couple of things. We see a difference between the crowd and the committed. Listen, I know it's true. We, we all love a big crowd, right? There's energy in the room. There's excitement. We get to see people. But listen, the point that Mark is making here is if you're a part of the crowd, you're preventing people from getting to Jesus. If you think that, you know what, what Jesus wants, he just wants me to show up to church. He just wants me to put some money in the bucket and then go throughout my life. If you're, you're coming to church and your idea is, how can Jesus feed me? What can Jesus do for me? Then the reality is, just move out of the way. Because Jesus doesn't want people who only want something from him. Jesus is looking for people who are so committed, they'll take a paralyzed man and dig through the roof of a house to get him to the feet of Jesus. Like we ought to be that committed. There are people in this world, in our community, in our lives that have constantly been told God couldn't love you. God doesn't love you. You're under God's judgment. Those are the people that we ought to be bringing to the feet of Jesus. And don't miss this because this is Peter's house. I don't know about you, but if Jesus was in my living room and all of a sudden a hole opened up in my ceiling, the first thing I'm thinking is who is going to pay for this? I mean, this is it's a disaster. You think, all right, I got to find a tarp. I got to, and then the next thing I'd be like, and who's going to clean up the mess? Have you ever patched like one tiny nail hole in the wall? And you're like, where did all this dust come from? Like, I can't imagine a hole in the ceiling. Listen, don't miss this. When we start doing what Jesus has called us to do, it's going to get messy. It, there, there's going to be a mess to clean up. And we want church to be nice and easy. And we only want people in our life group that we mesh with. And listen, that's not what Jesus has called us to do. He has called us to bring people who are broken, who are messy, who have problems, and to bring them to the feet of Jesus. Because when they get to Jesus, notice it says he saw whose faith? He saw their faith. He didn't see the paralyzed man's faith, and yet he healed him because of their faith. That's, by the way, why groups are so important. Because there are times in our lives where we feel paralyzed, where we don't know how are we going to recover from the hurt of a parent who left us? How are we going to recover from this marriage that fell apart? How are we going to recover from this thing that has rocked our faith? And you might be in a position where you don't have faith. But listen, when you're in a group, there's other people whose faith can carry you through. 
There's other people that in your season of doubt, they're going to fight for you. But also don't miss this because I think a lot of us would say, well, that's not me. I'm not in a season of doubt. There's nothing bad going on in my life. Listen, then the reason God wants you to be in a group is because you might have to have faith for somebody else who doesn't. You might have to invest your life into somebody who's struggling. Man, somebody gets COVID. They need people by their side. Somebody who's going through a difficult season financially, they need to know that they're not going under because they got people who love them and support them. We've got to be the people who are willing to drag a paralyzed body to the feet of Jesus. And when they get there, I love that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Because I don't know about you, sometimes I get this picture of God where he, he forgives because he has to. All right, I mean, I guess I'll forgive you, but you did that same thing yesterday and said you weren't going to do it anymore. You told me you were going to be a missionary anywhere I want if I just saved you from that situation, and here you are again. But the Bible says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. I don't know if you're allowed to have a favorite verse in the Bible. That one's mine. It says, Jesus is the exact representation of the radiance of God's glory. Do you want to know what God looks like? Don't turn to Genesis, Leviticus. Turn to Jesus. That is what God looks like, and Jesus wants to forgive. That's at the heart of who Jesus is. And if you're here today, it doesn't matter what your past is, what you're going through. Jesus is here today. He wants to forgive. In fact, we could say it this way. Jesus is dying to forgive you. Jesus wants to forgive you and restore you back to a community of people. And yes, when this happens, there's going to be some religious people who don't like it. Have you ever noticed, I don't know about you, but I feel like the more and more I follow Jesus, the people who get upset are not the people who are far from God. It's the people who think that they're closest to him. It's the people who think they have everything figured out. They're the ones who want to criticize and tear down. This is going to happen. But isn't it worth it to see our friends healed and restored? I'm running out of time. I didn't mean to go off on that tangent. All right. We got, we got four more. We can do it. Three more. We can do it. Second story, crowd show up again. Jesus sees this whole crowd is following him. As Jesus is passing by, he notices a guy named Levi. Later, we know Levi is Matthew. It says Levi's a tax collector. Nobody likes a tax collector. In fact, I never met somebody who said, you know what I'm really thankful for? I'm thankful for the IRS. You know, I'm just so, so blessed that we have that. And nobody says that. But especially in Jesus' day, because the way that the Romans collected taxes is they would employ these tax collectors. And the Romans would say, we need 30% tax. Whatever on top of that you want to charge for your own living, that's fine with me. And so when Jesus was born, the effective tax rate was oftentimes over 80%. Because whatever the Romans took, the tax collectors took even more. So they built nice houses. They built wealth off the backs of other people. Now what makes this even worse is that Matthew, he's a Jewish man which means he turned on his own people to support the Romans by overtaxing them. And the Pharisees and religious leaders looked at people like Matthew and said, you are the scum of the earth. You are the biggest of all sinners. And when Jesus sees the biggest of all sinners, what does he do? He says, hey, follow me. Follow me. Very next verse, chapter 2, verse 15. It says, while he, meaning Jesus, was reclining at the table in Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. 
So Jesus says, follow me. And he sits down to eat at Levi's house, at Matthew's house. It says the house was full of tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because they were following Jesus. Oh, this is so good. It didn't say former tax collectors. It didn't say former sinners. Jesus was willing to eat with them, to be with them, even before they had changed any behavior. See, Jesus was eating with these sinners. And of course, the religious leaders said, Jesus, what are you doing? These are the people who've caused us to be under judgment. How could you, if you spend time with them, they might think that you approve of their actions. If you spend time with them, people are going to start to talk, Jesus. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. And in verse 17, he responds. He said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come for people like you. I came for the people who've been told they're not good enough, that they've sinned too much, that have been pushed to the edges of society. That's who I have come to be with. And man, I love that Mark stacks this story with the other one. Because in the first story, they brought their friends to Jesus. In this one, Jesus went to the sinners. Which tells me that it's great if you want to invite people to church, but maybe invite them out to dinner before you invite them to church. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but maybe we need to have life groups that meet at places like Reformation Brewery, where you can actually be around other people. We don't always have to hide out in our house. We don't, that's why we try not to have groups that meet up at church because we want to be around people who, guess what, were the people that Jesus was around. Now, the fourth story is that Jesus and his disciples were walking in the grain fields, and it was a Sabbath day. Now, one thing you got to remember about Jesus, you know, Jesus was homeless, right? He didn't have a home, didn't have a whole lot of money, didn't carry a whole lot of food with him. So he and his disciples, it's a Sabbath day. You can't work on a Sabbath day. But they're walking through this grain field, and they start to take some of the grain so they can eat it. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders pop out. Like, I don't know, were they hiding in the weeds? Like, I don't know. Like, boom, Jesus got you. But the religious leaders show up, and they say, Jesus, you guys just broke the law. Because the law says you can't work on the Sabbath. And you're thinking, what do you mean you're working? Well, by definition, harvest is when you pull back the grain and you eat the food for yourself. So, Jesus, you just harvested and Jesus turns around and is like, you guys have completely missed the point. He's like, listen, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, I gave the law to be a benefit to people. My commands are supposed to benefit them, not burden them. It's a reminder to me, there's two ways we can read Scripture. You can read Scripture to judge other people. You can read Scripture to cut them down. You can read Scripture to make yourself feel better. Or you can read Scripture in such a way that it caused you to love people to care for them, to see them the way God cares for them. We have a saying at our staff, we say people over policy. Listen, policies are good. We need policies at our church. But the policies don't mean anything if it stops us from loving people. That's exactly what the Pharisees had done. And then the last healing story, Jesus is in the synagogue. And this man shows up with a shriveled hand. Remember that guy's a sinner. Not supposed to be worshiping God. God's judged him. And he shows up, and I love it. it says, before anything happens, it says that the Pharisees and religious leaders were watching Jesus to see what he would do. You ever felt like you walked in a room and people were already watching you? Jesus knows what that feels like. What are you gonna do, Jesus? And Jesus knows this, so he takes this man. He says, hey, um, come up here, come here. So the guy goes up and Jesus addresses the Pharisees. He says, guys, you know what? Is it lawful to do good or to do evil? 
on the Sabbath. I know you think I'm not supposed to heal him because it's a Sabbath day, but, but I have the power to. So you want me to hold back so I can follow these regulations. And it says the Pharisees remained silent. They knew, they, it didn't matter which way they answered. Jesus had them. And so Jesus turns to the man. He says, stretch out your hand. And it says the man reached out his hand and immediately he was healed. Now, if I saw Jesus heal somebody like that, I could think of a lot of responses. Awe, wonder, worship. You know how the Pharisees responded? Said they left that place plotting to kill Jesus. Mark chapter three, verse six. From this moment on, there's a plot to kill Jesus, to be continued. But man, it is so easy in our passion for scripture to use it as a weapon to cut other people down. And if you read the scripture and you read anything other than how to love God and how to love people, then you're doing it wrong. Some of them tired of seeing people use scripture as a weapon to bludgeon people over the head. Don't think that's what God ever intended. Because when Jesus uses scripture, he speaks life. He speaks healing. He speaks hope. He speaks second chances. And I'm here today to tell you that the new thing that Jesus started, it's still going on today. But the impulse to go back to the old way, guess what? It's still here today too. The old way of let me just be a part of the crowd and come and see how is Jesus going to feed me? That's still here today. To be a part of the crowd that says, how dare Jesus heal? The, who does Jesus? You think God could love somebody like that? You think he could? They need to change their behavior before they can follow Jesus. That temptation's still there. The temptation to say, well, you know what? Um, according to this one right here, um, you're in judgment of God. That temptation is still here. And the question that Mark is posing to us today is will you be a part of the crowd or will you be a part of the committed? Will you be people who are focused on yourself and what you can get and will you just get in the way? Or is Jesus telling us, no, 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 get out of the way or get committed? And so we're gonna spend just a moment here at the end of our time together. We're not gonna have communion this morning because we have Inside Life group, but I believe this is a holy moment here. And it would be a shame if we just had this moment we went on. We didn't have a moment to wrestle with what God is saying to us. So we're going to take just a couple of minutes here. And I want you to ask these questions. The first one, in what ways am I a part of the crowd? In what ways has your faith become all about you? What can Jesus do for you? And the second question, in what ways can I be a part of the committed what is Jesus calling you to do? Who is Jesus calling you to? What does it look like to sacrifice time, energy, effort, money, so that other people could find healing at the feet of Jesus? So if all across the room, we could just bow our heads and close our eyes, spend a few moments reflecting on those questions. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, 
we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.